Hello and welcome to Hacked Off. In today's episode, I've got a guest with me. Um, Pauline, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, thanks, Holly. Um, my name is Pauline Nordstrom. Um, I've been in the security industry for nearly 20 years and uh, I've worked in tech and in particular um, on the video side of things, so video surveillance and the technology involved in categorising and um, creating triggers from video surveillance cameras. Um, also, some emerging technologies which analyse video, which is a form of AI. I've been in various companies in this industry for um, that period and most recently started my own consultancy business, which is a boutique consultancy hub, as I would describe it, which is um, focused on taking technology into the sector, helping companies who want to advance their offerings, analyse their products, help them with the introduction of AI in particular. Uh, in the sector, um, which I describe as the video surveillance sector, there are some issues relating to the categorisation of images and the use of those images uh, in order to create situational awareness. And my focus is on helping companies to do that effectively, but also with my broad business background, because I've been MD, COO, president of various companies in the sector. I also bring the business aspect of it in terms of analysing the business process and looking at the most effective ways of introducing such technologies and looking at the impact of introducing those technologies. So what are some of the impacts of video surveillance technologies? Well, if I start, um, if I relate to another area that I've been involved in, um, when you're in an industry, you get known um, for supporting the cause. And um, I joined the British Security Industry Association some time ago, about 13 years ago. And they asked me to become the leader of their video surveillance section, which was focused on uh, actually um, creating standards and raising the awareness of best practice and the need for best practice in the industry. And um, what was very surprising to me at the time when I learned that video surveillance is unregulated. There, there are no barriers to entry. Anyone can just become a video surveillance installer. There is absolutely nothing to stop them. You know, the, the plumber could become, um, you know, a video surveillance installer. And it really concerned me that cameras were being deployed, uh, that the technology wasn't standardised and there were no methods of actually ensuring that the end user would achieve the result that they wanted. So I spent a number of years uh, working in those groups, bringing together stakeholders who included our competitors, get them around the table and discuss the best ways of putting some sort of form and structure around the use of the cameras in the UK. Now, during that time, um, I eventually became the chairman of the overall association, so started looking at not just video surveillance, but other aspects of the sector. And that involved looking at the manned part of the sector that actually used that video surveillance uh, data in order to go and do something, which might be to respond to an incident. Um, and then I realised that it wasn't really clear who owned the cameras uh, in terms of whether they were owned by the government or whether, in fact, private businesses owned those cameras. And I started an effort within the association to form a research report, uh, which essentially examined the number of cameras and also the use of those cameras in the UK. 
Now, that report was generated in around 2013. Mm -hmm. And since then, it's become the definitive reference source (laughs) pretty much around the world. Um, In fact, I got a random call from Wall Street Journal the other day asking about the report Mm. and, you know, um, just to tell them a little bit about how, uh, you know, the number was was actually formulated, the methodology, and actually to confirm that only one in 70 cameras in the UK is actually owned by the government. Mm -hmm. And the rest of those cameras are in the private sector, which presented a substantial issue really in terms of sharing information and getting access to the data when there's an incident. And it occurred to me, you know, having established there could be at that time at least six million cameras in the UK. Yeah, a huge number. Huge number. Um, so what's what's to be done with all of those cameras if they're owned by private businesses? Mm-hmm. And how could they be used uh, for the benefit of the public, you know, for, for social benefit? So fundamentally, this has raised a whole load of issues. And I say that um, video surveillance has been in the spotlight um, over the years. Uh, initially, as a result of the public fearing that the government was watching, so this big brother approach. <laughs> um, but I think that um, the industry really responded to that um, by confirming, well, you know what? It's the private sector that owns these cameras and they're deploying the cameras in order to protect their own premises. And in the case of, let's say, retail, as the police have a low level of interest in prosecuting offenders, uh, the retailers were starting to take the law into their own hands mm-hmm. Um, and using the technology really effectively to identify offenders. Now, that's really where um, the hot topic for video surveillance emerged, and that's the use of facial recognition Mm -hmm. in public spaces. And there have been a number of high-profile trials that have occurred recently. But in fact, the technology has been in existence for at least 10 years, and companies have been playing with it, experimenting. That's facial recognition technology. Facial recognition technology. Now, this opens up a whole load of issues, um, not just in terms of whether the technology works, whether it can successfully essentially create a map of a face Mm -hmm. of an individual, but also where that data comes from, um, how it's stored. And this extends into, you know, it's not just AI, but it extends across the networks as well, because generally video surveillance data would be shared. Mm -hmm. So it may go into the cloud, it may span networks, and where does it end up? So it's opening up a whole load of issues about how systems communicate with each other in order to share this data. But there's a substantial concern about privacy now. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so much so that um, draft legislation and private members bill has mm-hmm. been started in the House of Lords already. And it yep. got its first reading in October. <laughs> and that um, is essentially calling for a moratorium and a yeah. ban of the use of facial recognition technology um, in the short term until a proper review has been done mm-hmm. and a report created which then creates recommendations as to what the ethical and legal frameworks um, what's the what's require. the concerns there because um if if uh, video surveillance is taking place without facial recognition is that not also a privacy risk what how I, does facial absolutely. recognition specifically affect that um it's a very good point and i think this is putting the the number of video surveillance cameras in the uk in the spotlight mm-hmm. again and i felt the industry had essentially communicated well, mm-hmm. um, you know, to allay public fears um, about the use of their data. But those cameras are still there. And <laughs> when you walk around the streets and, uh, you know, it's not just in public places. If you're walking near a building, privately owned building that has video surveillance cameras, you're likely to be recorded. Now, um, 
in terms of, let's say, making the public feel safe that nobody knows, you know, or can track their movements, um, I think we explained as an industry that, you know, the systems and the operators of those systems don't know who you are. So, uh, yeah, I see. yeah, you can't yeah. be identified because there's actually no other personal data associated yeah. with your image. Now, with the introduction of DDPR and uh, spotlight and a focus on what data is being recorded and for what purpose, also a focus on what is identifying data. Um, this has actually been applied to this subject. And fundamentally, the issue here is all these cameras exist. Mm -hmm. And you're being recorded wherever you go, mm -hmm. and um, several hundred times a day, no doubt. Uh, but the facial rec recognition cameras are now being criticised for mapping your face. And fundamentally, um, you know, the industry's position on this is the facial rec recognition software still doesn't know who you are. Yeah. Because there's actually no identifying data to go with mm -hmm. that map. So it's actually no different to a conventional video say, surveillance image. However, the fears that have been raised suggest that even if you map a face in a video surveillance image and that map of the face could be used later and matched against mm -hmm. a database, then that could actually be causing concern and have an impact on the privacy of that individual. Yeah. But, it, you know, in, in terms of the introduction of AI and the ethical and legal considerations, um, Generally, in the software world, um, software is released and, you know, the users will test it, the beta tests, and the feedback comes into the company releasing it. And then any sort of legal frameworks that are required tend to be put in later. But with AI, it appears that the AI, the whole concept, has to be tested first. Yeah. And the current sort of ethical, well, it's the legal legislative framework has to be tested against that AI in order to see, to determine whether any additional you know, legal frameworks are required. And that, that's the bone of contention, really. The face is already recorded. So six million cameras, maybe more. Um, yep. My personal opinion is it could be nearly 10 million now. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that research is about to be refreshed. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the concern here, if your face is mapped, there is data that is unique to you stored somewhere. And the question here, um, the impact on the individual may occur if some other database is then utilised in order to match that face data with something else. Now, if you have a passport, you've already given your face to the government. Yep. So you could argue they've already <laughs> got you and they've got your identifying data. But the concern here is that data sets could be used and the public may not be aware that their data is actually in that data set. Mm -hmm. For example, one of the areas that's been examined um, by a kind of joint review by the Biometrics Commissioner, the Forensic Science Regulator and the Surveillance Camera Commissioner, they've looked at, well, what data is actually in these watch lists, mm -hmm. as they're described. And it does appear that um, any custody suite data, so if you're taken in for questioning yeah. and you're not charged, um, all custody suite interviews are recorded. So, yeah. um, you know, if that is unfortunately, you know, you as an individual you may find yourself on a database and you may not know you're on that database. And it appears that although the police need to and they must delete the data within six years, after six years, they just haven't got the resources to do this. So, All right. Okay, so the, I think there's, the, the, personally, I think there is reason for concern. As a technologist and, you know, a, a, a real supporter of introducing technology for the greater good, um, I'm a great supporter of that, but the... The issues that are arising here are a cause for concern. 
And um, fundamentally, you know, as a supporter of technology, I want to make sure that um, as an industry, as a company that advises other companies in the industry, that the ethical and legal frameworks are being examined. And in that context, um, one of the areas that I explore in my own business is helping businesses to look at the impact on Mm -hmm. the individual. And fundamentally, that will then wash through into, you know, the stakeholder influence, because if the businesses try and test this out first, which tends to be what happens, the private sector tends to try technology, they create their own frameworks and then gift those frameworks to the public sector. And these new methodologies, um, means of assessing, you know, the ethical impact and the impact on the individual, those those matters can be tested in a safe environment and then applied um, to the stakeholder environment, which is essentially the government and the stakeholders, such as police and other, you know, interest groups and privacy interest groups mm-hmm. um, who are taking a keen interest in this. A lot to think about for it then, isn't it? It's a lot more complicated than maybe people initially realise. I think the, the complexity uh, relates to the unknown. Mm-hmm. Um the actual technology itself is really quite simple and it's quite mature and it's been used extensively in the private sector over a number of years. Mm-hmm. For example, the convergence of uh, access control and video surveillance that's been happening for many years and used very effectively now in the education system whereby uh, someone through their own choice will go onto a premises, they'll be photographed and their image will be associated with the access control system. Yeah. So, you know, that's been happening and um, the technology itself is relatively mature, but all the issues relating to the impact on the privacy of the individual, those issues are very blurred. I think there's a lack of understanding and there's a lack of transparency as well. Now, the transparency of the AI can be explained Mm -hmm. in the context, but the handling of the data, the passing of the data between authorities and also the transfer of data from one system to the next system it's really unclear how that's happening, who actually regulates it, who's in control. And in terms of you know, hacking and cybersecurity, um, you know, it really needs to be very clear who has ownership of that data and is responsible for the security of that data at each, at each stage. Yeah, so um, users are concerned about not not knowing what's happening. Then is that? I think that's yeah. that's the main concern, and and that's always really been the concern with the use of video surveillance cameras. Is about transparency, mm-hmm. um, when it's explained that actually the government isn't watching you. It's you know a lot of private premises who are just looking after their own interests, and that video just happens to spill over to public areas. Uh, the the concern around the use of video surveillance pretty much went away. Um, also, it's been used in some very high-profile cases. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, in the um, you know the seven-seven attacks in London. Um, you know, the um, chief of police and, and head of AC, what was ACPO, a, a police regulatory body at the time, uh, suggested that the, the second attack um, had been stopped as a result yeah. of, and you know that was widely reported in the mainstream media. And all of this makes the public feel safe. Mm-hmm. And gives a sense of well-being that the video surveillance is actually preventing terrorism. Yeah, and it, it's such a direct good, right? Nobody's going to argue that that we shouldn't, shouldn't be doing yeah. that as a as an idea. Yeah. So there's enough evidence now that that proves that video surveillance can solve crime, but can also prevent crime. Where facial recognition is concerned, uh, there there are virtually no high-profile cases. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, 
to help the public understand how it's being used and also what positive benefits it could have for society. Yeah. That needs, that's yet to happen. Are there um, potential future developments on the AI side of things that, that could raise additional concerns that we haven't seen yet? I think um, that is a really good question. And, <laughs> you know, I've touched on um, the passing of data between systems. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, you, you may have heard the expression smart cities, mm-hmm. smart buildings. And there is certainly a move towards um, bringing together multiple sensor inputs. And when by sensors, I mean a video surveillance camera. It might be a door contact. It might be, you know, something that is operating a traffic light um, to manage the the traffic flow, or you know, to or from some incident. And fundamentally, you know, as we see an increasing threat of terrorism, that's always been around, um, and certainly in the UK. Uh, that's ever increasing. And also there's a gravitation of the population towards the cities and city yeah. living is becoming very popular and fashionable. And that raises a whole load of questions in terms of safety and security. Now, in order to make a safety and security system effective and accessible by the authorities, a whole load of disparate systems which have been designed just for a specific purpose now have to start talking to each mm-hmm. other. And um, this is where we get into an understanding of the world, which is physical security. And also um, the other side, you flip that coin and you have the IT security world. Mm -hmm. And uh, historically, these two worlds haven't talked to each other. Generally, physical security is associated with security guards. And um, being a low-tech industry. But as all of those systems now communicate over... IT networks, uh, there is a consideration that has to be given towards those devices, which are seen as IoT devices now. I was just thinking, is there a parallel here with IoT? Very much so. And those are seen as autonomous devices that are collecting data. And if you imagine the paradigm in an IT system, you may have one central system that is serving multiple users Mm -hmm. in a security system that, that, not just security, but a management system that creates a smart building or a smart city. Those... um, those users are now systems and they're mm-hmm. essentially exposed or vulnerable endpoints with not many users. Um, and that's there lies the problem. They're kind of quite obscure. So many of these systems are kind of ignored and nobody knows they're there. <laughs> so they don't get hacked. Um, it's, it's kind of security by obscurity. But now we're seeing these devices popping up on networks mm-hmm. Uh, we've heard about the um, Mirai attack. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we, we're starting to realise that all of these sensor inputs that are used to manage buildings are actually presenting a significant vulnerability. So what we're seeing is um, essentially a convergence of sensor inputs with IT networks, and those sensor inputs are your door contacts, their access control, and, and other means of managing buildings are suddenly within the security net and the developers of these systems haven't necessarily considered the use of those products um, in the context of sharing that data with other mm-hmm. systems because security systems tend to be closed because they're there yeah. to protect the buildings. So the consideration now is actually there are a whole load of disparate systems. How do they talk to each mm-hmm. other? So there's a dialogue about APIs yeah. to enable the sharing of data and also um, an increasing focus on looking at IoT security. So, so one of my interests is uh, membership of the IoT Security Foundation, mm-hmm. looking at what's going on there, really keeping a watching brief, um, and also 
not only that, cybersecurity forums and boards are emerging, mm-hmm. which are considering these issues. And the issues are, well, there's a physical security sector that deals with cybersecurity in a certain way, and that is just to close it. So if the system's closed, it can't share data. Yeah. We need them to share data. So the various groups involved in developing these standards are now talking to each other and considering <laughs> physical security um, under that umbrella and vice versa, yeah. all within the realms of IoT or industrial IoT. Yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned Mariah there, just um, in case people are unfamiliar with that. That was a, essentially a, a botnet made of IoT devices, right? So yeah. um, attacking uh, not the system itself, but the system is using those resources. That's right. And um, this, this was as a result of a vulnerability. I think it was a Linux vulnerability. Um, and if you can imagine that in order to take products to market, a simple design is produced and then replicated. Mm-hmm. And um, typically the DSP, the, the people who make the electronics within those products, that's how they get the products to market yeah. and ensure the adoption of those products um, by the mass market. But also it can create um, an inherent vulnerab- vulnerability, mm-hmm. which is what happened there. And essentially these devices uh, were infected and um, nobody knew they'd been affected, mm-hmm. and you know the. Well, certainly the the owners had no idea. They had no idea because it wouldn't affect the operation of the yep. product. And when a you know sufficient uh, attack surface, mm-hmm. you know we, we we use this term now attack surface, um, which essentially is all those exposed devices. When there were sufficient devices um, available and infected, they were essentially able to um, undertake a massive denial of service attack. Yep. Um, by all talking to the same <laughs> website at, and service at the same time, which is a really simple way of disabling that service, but most alarming as well. And I think this really put a spotlight on the need for the physical security sector to to wake up and start talking to the outside world. And I don't mean that uh, in a way that suggests that this isn't a technical sector, it's mm-hmm. highly technical, but it's about awareness of the sharing of data and also the fact that these systems are IoT devices yeah. and they're exposed. And, they're and just um, possibly just the, the types of attacks as well. So if you are uh, making an IoT device, you might have considered, oh, we need to protect this device and its data. But but with that Mirai example, it's it's attacking other systems. So maybe there's there's attacks there or threats there that they just haven't considered. Yes, I would I'd say so. And, you know, that's a continual issue, isn't mm-hmm. it, that, that needs to be monitored. But certainly there needs to be consideration given to the the types of operating systems mm-hmm. and the services that are exposed in those operating systems to create an absolute minimum um, standard, you know, that, that would lock out the, the most basic attacks. But fundamentally, this needs to be continually reviewed. And, yeah. you know, um, cybersecurity isn't a constant. Mm-hmm. It's, it's changing. And um, if someone tries to get in one door, they'll try the back door and yeah. they'll try the front door again, just in case someone left it open. And um, that's the world in which we live in. So it's it's about awareness. Um, and that awareness extends beyond the IT system, extends into all those sensor devices. And if this is done effectively, um, it, this enables the secure and safe sharing of data, mm-hmm. which creates that smart city. And a smart city is essentially giving the authorities that run that city the means of understanding what's happening and creating situa- situational awareness which can enable a really fast, effective response. Mm -hmm. And we want that because it's in the public interest to do so. And it's a social responsibility. But equally, these systems have to be safe because we we wouldn't want these systems to be turned against us and, let's say, to lock down a city to enable an attack. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a great responsibility sits with the manufacturers and all the stakeholders 
involved in developing products, but also the monitoring all, of all the networks and um, to ensure that you know vulnerabilities aren't introduced. And that can be done through minimum standards, through legislation, but equally awareness. And yeah. if, if users, if the stakeholders are aware that these vulnerabilities might exist, they're more likely to check. Whereas historically, you know, these endpoint devices that just sit there and nobody really interacts with them, it's really unclear what they're doing, so they're kind of ignored because they never presented a threat yeah. before. And now things are getting interconnected and sharing data and those those threats increase. That's right, yes. But equally, the benefits of sharing data mm-hmm. um, is, is better understood. And uh, fundamentally, what we want is openness, but also for it to be closed and secure. So we want both. Yeah. You talk about a minimum standard for security there. Um, how, how does that work? Is that just a, a discussion from a forum group who, who put together, we think these are the things that should be considered? Is it that kind of thing? I think this is a very contentious issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, many manufacturers, they have a different view as to how things should be done. Um, generally, manufacturers are now considering secure by design mm-hmm. um, from the ground up. Um, but because uh, the, the matter of security of video surveillance devices in particular has been a secondary consideration. It's suddenly, oh gosh, we better think about this and put something in place. Some measures have been recommended, um, such as ensuring there is a password system mm-hmm. to ensure that there are no default passwords left well, on those devices. The, that was the Mirai yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, what, one of the issues was a default uh, credentials, default passwords, yeah. but also um, vendor passwords like maintenance accounts as well. That's right. And you know, this is something that the industry needs to look at um, because in order to maintain multiple systems, mm-hmm. um, you know, vendors tend to have, um, you know, a team of engineers who go around sites yeah. and uh, if their admin passwords <laughs> are common, <laughs> we've seen that. Um, you know, it's another, it's about awareness, about consideration towards all the, you know, if you've got, if you've got a password system and it's used by a company which makes the company efficient in servicing its products, it could also make it vulnerable. Well, it makes the attacker efficient, right? <laughs> Somewhat, yes. Cool. Um, so that's um, IoT stuff. Is there anything else AI that's that's relevant here? I think in terms of um, looking at how AI, pl- AI is applied in business, um, the it's not just about making a product capable of mm-hmm. um, performing a function. AI covers a broad spectrum of means of analysing data and creating outputs. Yeah. And certainly in business, businesses are starting to automate their processes. Okay. And um, it's certainly an area that um, I'm looking at, but my focus is mainly on the use of video surveillance cameras and adding value to enable the categorization of the images, and the better use of that data and the sharing of the data. In the business context, ethical considerations still have to be taken into account, the impact on the employees and also whether there is a robust framework which challenges the use of that AI. Mm-hmm. As uh, data goes into this black box of analysis, um, other companies... Can you, can you give us an example there? So I think everyone immediately knows what we mean by video surveillance, but yeah. in the context of business processes, how, how does it apply there? Well, in one of the areas in which AI is proving to be very effective is actually in forecasting. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, because this is, it can be a bit of a black art for many companies <laughs> um, to try and stick a pin in the map in terms yeah. of you know, how how many products they should make, certainly in manufacturing, but in any company that has to provide to its customers, forecasting is is a challenge for sure. So in terms of how AI could be applied to this, I've examined this in some detail actually, generally forecasting um, 
occurs as a result of looking at multiple data sources. Mm -hmm. And those data sources are generally produced by the company itself. And that may be in terms of previous sales, historic sales, and then projecting sales as a result of some sort of marketing or outbound activity. But also looking at, um, you know, the performance of, let's say, the um, component purchase, the supply chain, in order to create availability. Um, that has to be examined as well. Um, but not only that, other factors outside the company mm -hmm. can now be analysed and through um, very simple methods of natural language processing to analyse web reports, mm -hmm. to analyse market research reports and then bring that data together in order to create sensitivity um, and a weighting for that forecast. These are areas where AI can really add value to a business. And I'll give you an example. Let's say a retailer doesn't know how much beer to buy. Yeah. Okay, so it's, it's an often used example because it's really simple. And they may just look at historical sales. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's that's one way of doing it. But they may not have considered the fact that some major sporting events going on yeah. or the weather's going to be really nice that weekend. <laughs> um, so what the AI does is take all of these inputs and help to generate an output that is more relevant and accurate. And as a result, it reduces, you know, the high inventory or even wastage of product as a result of, you know, shelf life. Mm -hmm. So what kind of um, ethical concerns are there there then? Is it just uh, the similar to video surveillance? It's, well, where is this data going and who's responsible for it? Or is there some, some difference there? Um, there are, certainly in terms of um, the data of the private individual, mm -hmm. um, certainly in terms of operators who may be interacting with these systems, the public who may call in and provide their data to a company. But the other ethical considerations look at whether the employee would be impacted by the use of the AI. And uh, this is important because if employees feel that they would not have a job as a result of using AI, they may be resistant to the adoption. Mm -hmm. And there could be a cultural effect within a company which essentially prevents the adoption of that technology because it hasn't been properly explained that yeah. as a result of automating <clears throat> tasks that take one second to think about, that employee is presented with let's say, a roadmap for a more fulfilling um, job in that company, which involves looking at the outputs of the AI and making decisions from those outputs, but also spending more time in developing their, skill, their social skills and their people skills, which AI, AI can't do. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> developing relationships yeah. as opposed to processing data. And I think this is a mindset change as well. Mm -hmm. But mindset can change if there's, you know, you take away the fear factor, and in order to introduce AI, the ethical consideration is, will it displace this person's job? If it will displace the job, what does that company do about retraining that person or actually defining the role post-AI? Yeah. And if those things are done, the companies are more likely to be successful in using AI and becoming more efficient and creating differentiation yeah. and you know more profitable. And if they do all of that, they'll create more employment. Yeah, that sounds very similar, perhaps I'm being naive, but sounds very similar to, to any automation, really. This is just a, a more modern, more advanced type of automation. Is that right? That's right, yes. Um, but also looking at automation as a result of pulling data together from disparate systems, which is fairly difficult to do because you have so many different data formats and also some of that data, not just in the written format, mm -hmm. but also the spoken word. So analysis of the voice. Um, yep. you know, can be used and input into the system in order to create a result. So we talked about um, 
companies or employers uh, being concerned ethically about the impact on employees, um, is there a risk potentially that um, some companies won't care and they'll just say, well, this makes us more money, so we're going to do it. So maybe there's a requirement for a, a regulatory side there. Uh, they, there could well be, but and now that um, you know, social media has given anyone the opportunity to communicate with anyone. <laughs> you know, you could you can reach the leader of a company and uh, communicate with them. Um, and previously, they may not have been able to do that. Um, companies who deploy without any consideration towards ethics and the impact on the employees will get a bad reputation. Mm-hmm. And uh, fundamentally, you know, the customers will vote with their feet because they want to be dealing with an ethical organisation. And maybe even the employees as well. The employees would leave, they won't retain talent. And, you know, it it, it has a a wide impact. In terms of legislation, um, that's a difficult one to call at the Mm, stage um, because how do you regulate the commercial world, which innovates and creates new things? It might stifle innovation. But certainly in terms of the use of personal data, that personal data, whether it's the employee's data, their demographic, whether it's the customer's demographic, there are some regulations in place. But what's missing right now is a real challenge um, relating to the transparency of the AI. Mm-hmm. Some of the AIs are so sophisticated now, nobody knows how they reach the decision. Yeah. So that's an area that I certainly believe will receive attention and we'll yeah. start to see some standards emerging. And whether those sit within a regulatory framework possibly within you know the protection of freedoms act yeah um we may see these um maybe some statutory instruments emerging as a result yeah some some difficulties there with um if an ai has bias yes. and if you can't demonstrate that how the ai came to the decision then you can't demonstrate it was unbiased correct yeah. yes and also you know there are issues with um humans overriding ai decisions oh, yeah? the humans are biased so the yeah. ai reaches the right decision yeah. Unbiased decision, and the human says, no, don't like the look of that one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, forms a view um, just on, on, on with no basis whatsoever. So, you know, or missing, missing key key data. Yeah, one of, one, one of the, the, the key concerns that we, we can all read about in, in the press is getting an understanding of what data sets have been used to train the AI. And um, we've heard a lot about, you know, fundamentally, there are certain demographics that have been used more extensively than others, mm-hmm. which makes the AI quite vulnerable um, and is unable to identify um, other demographics. And I think that's about awareness. Can you give an example of that for people who've not come across the, yeah, that kind of bias? Probably facial recognition is yeah. a really, really good example. Um, many of the data sets, let's say if the data sets have been uh, generated as a result of using images from um, the Western world, mm-hmm. um, and maybe those data sets have been biased towards ma- white males, yeah. um, which, you know, is widely reported, in fact. Um, and partly because, you know, the um, demographic of the industry tends to be white male. And, you know, this is this is a, a widely known issue. Mm-hmm. So it uh, can't be a surprise that the algorithms, you know, yeah. are very good at identifying white males. So the, the training data is is key then, is critical. Absolutely. And, yeah. So to, in, to ensure that the data actually covers the wider demographic, that it's relevant and it's it's taken in the right context and proportionate. And also, um, if, let's say here's another issue about transparency, how do you know if your face has been used in that train, training data set? Yeah. Okay, so we've got images on Facebook, um, and were recorded, you know, video surveillance images might have been used, and you won't know. 
Yeah. So that, that that question about transparency is is going to be it's being asked now, and the industry needs to respond to that um, in a way that doesn't stifle innovation. So again, it's almost asking for the impossible, but I do believe it can be achieved. Yeah, you know, with more processing power, with just better documentation and um, understanding of the methodologies, and also um, raising the awareness if 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 groups who are ignored in these data sets are saying by the way you can't identify us that's great yeah. so they need to speak up and raise the awareness of that um, because fundamentally the developer isn't necessarily going to be thinking about that uh, they'll be wanting to make a fantastic algorithm that performs in the lab yeah and that's that's the thing isn't it with with product demos sometimes they're, they're biased in terms of hey it, it works in all of these example scenarios but maybe not in the real world that's right yeah Wow, there's a lot a lot covered there. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to, to mention? I don't think so. I think that, that pretty much covers it. I mean, I could talk about um, security and video <laughs> surveillance, you know, and, um, you know, how that, that, that sector is going and how it may be regulated. But I think I've probably given a, a, a sufficient insight yeah. into how it all works. And I hope it's been helpful and informative. I think, like, like as we as we highlight here, right, the, the big thing is um, awareness. And I think this is a, a good way of getting that out there, right? People now now can listen to the podcast and say, "Oh, I hadn't considered that in that, this way, or maybe hadn't considered the the AI swing on things." So, yeah, it's a good overview, I think. So, um, thank so thank you for for coming on. You're welcome. And uh, if uh, anyone has any questions about anything that we've covered in this podcast, please do let us know over social media, and we'll we'll no doubt follow up if something uh, interesting's raised. And thank everyone for listening. Thank you.